You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Gideon Drucker, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. Not rich yet. One of my friends at college had borrowed her mother's car, and the group of us was off to the city. There was some type of electronics expo or another. I had tagged along more for the ride than any innate interest in a shopping expedition. For the next couple of hours, I followed various friends as they picked through the booths. Ooing and eyeing, they all pulled out their credit cards at various times. After an early dinner, we all paraded ourselves back to the parking garage. My friend's hands were so full of new purchases that there was no space in the trunk and a few boxes had to be wedged behind our heads in the back seat. Upon arriving back at the dorm, the unpacking began. As we stood in a circle to say goodbye, my friends were all juggling their heavy load of boxes and bags and readjusting in order not to lose a hold of their newfound treasures. I held my hands in my pocket in order to minimize the contrast. And then one friend looked at me quizzically. You didn't buy anything? And I hadn't. It wasn't that I couldn't afford it, because I probably had more money in my bank account from working than any of them. It wasn't because I was being frugal or was depriving myself. I simply had no interest. Years later, when becoming acquainted with the personal finance community, I would hear over and over again how it was easy for me on a doctor's salary. However, many of those friends from university who had taken that shopping spree are high earners to this day. Yet they are holding their lives, stuff, and finances together unsteadily, similar to that storied day in college. Knowing that their capacity is full to the limit, Their grasp is fading, and some item or another is about to tumble recklessly to the ground. Of course they are high earners, but they are by no means rich yet. They are Henry's. Gideon Drucker is the founder and director of the Wealth Builder Division at Drucker Wealth, a family financial management firm started by his grandfather, Bernie Drucker, in 1959. The third-generation Drucker, Gideon, specializes in working with young professionals and looking to take a more proactive approach to their financial future. He is the creator of the Henry Syndrome suite of services and author of the book, How to Avoid the Henry Syndrome, Financial Strategies to Own Your Future. Gideon, welcome to Earn and Invest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed your book, and I've heard this term Henry Syndrome a few times now, so it's actually great to read about someone who's focusing on this group who's really coming of age right now. Yeah, absolutely, and it's funny, you know, I would like to claim credit for the Henry idea, the Henry Syndrome, but I think that's been out there a lot longer than we have, but uh, but we just realized after working with so many people that fit that description, 
and really that they call themselves Henry. They might not have been using those words, but how they felt about their financial future and where they felt that they were at in their life, it just, it kind of sounded like the same thing over and over. And that's really what led me to go down this path of walking, you know, almost exclusively with the Henrys in my world. So I want to start with a funny question. We're going to talk about the Henry syndrome in depth, but first tell me your most frightening moment as a paratrooper in the Israeli Defense Forces. Wow, that, that actually might take up the entire podcast because I think I was just permanently scared on a weekly basis. I would have to say the first time we got to jump course and we were learning how to jump out of a plane. And uh, for a little bit back of backstory, I was the kid growing up in camp that wouldn't do the zip line. I've, you know, chairlifts going skiing. I always had a big fear of heights and I was in Israel. So I was speaking a language that I had not really learned, you know, enough of to this point. I maybe understood every fifth sentence that, uh, that the commanders were speaking. And we get to the base. And the first thing we do is watch a three hour movie all about how to jump out of the plane, how to attach your gear, how to land correctly without injuring yourself. And as we're watching this movie, I'm getting more and more anxious, not really understanding what's happening. I already have this fear of heights. I run up to my commander afterwards. I said, attention commander. You know, I have no idea what the movie was just saying. I have a fear of heights. I'm new here. I'm from another country. And he said, Gidon, Gidon, don't worry. You're going to be fine. When you jump, just keep your legs together. That's all there is to it. I said, commander, that was a three-hour movie. They must have covered a little bit more material than, you know, keep your legs together and that's it. Turned out he was right. We had to jump seven times, all with our weapons attached, you know, half the time in the middle of the night. And by and large, he was right. Keep your legs uh, attached and you're going to be fine. But uh, that entire three-week course, I remember waking my parents up in the middle of the night. I sent them a call. Hey, I just jumped. I'm all good. You know, I enjoyed it and and I'm moving forward. But uh, that three weeks, I'll remember for the rest of my life for sure. So help me reconcile this vision of you that I have. On the one side, I see this guy who joins his family third-generation financial advising business. Sounds like a pretty conservative guy. And then on the other hand, I think of you jumping out of a plane for the Israeli Defense Forces. They sound like two different guys. They, they very much do. And now you can get a good sense of how my, how my mom and sister felt the first time that I shared with them, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. And, you know, I'm looking forward to getting started doing it. But I always grew up in a proud you know, Jewish home. And my dad supported Israel in a lot of different ways growing up. So I, I kind of always grew up with that passion. And it was really, you know, we're not so religious, but just the idea that Jews take care of other Jews was something I always just was really passionate about. At university, I started a club supporting Israel on campus, brought a lot of different interesting speakers. And I just kind of got to the end of college and thought, there's only so much I can do, you know, writing about Israel, supporting Israel without actually putting my boots on the ground. Most Israelis have to serve. There's a draft. And I kind of felt like I had to do my part, really walk the walk if I was going to talk about it. So uh, I actually graduated a year early, took a lot of my financial courses to join the family business because, you know, conservative, that was exactly what I planned on doing. And uh, so I was already, I got in my suits, I was all ready to join the firm. And I called my dad and they said, hey, you know, there's this thing I'm thinking about doing. And uh, what do you think? And the first question he asked was, well, how far along are you, right? Like, how close are you to actually doing this. And I said, ah, I don't know, maybe 50-50. And he's like, all right, when you get to 80%, you have to tell your mom. <laughs> I was like, oh, dad, that's kind of why I called you first. I thought you were going to grease the wheels a little bit for me here. He's like, no, that's something you're going to have to do on your own. But so it t- I took that whole summer, really thought about it and realized that it was something I would always regret if I didn't have that part of my life and kind of do what I thought I could at the time. The plan never wavered from joining the family firm. I was, you know, I was reading books on guard duty about financial planning and 
what we did. But uh, but I took a little beer from the path that absolutely is different than the rest of what I'm doing for now, right now. That's for sure. So I always say I knew I was going to be a doctor growing up. My father was one. He died when I was very young. And I always grew up knowing, was it the same for you? Were you like, I'm going to be a financial advisor? I'm going to join the family business even when you're a little kid? It really was. I'd like to say I had this like one aha moment or epiphany. But you know, my family's very close. And I just I grew up going to a lot of my dad's workshops or seminars. He would come home at dinner and tell story, you know, client stories. I think we were very open as a family about money and finances. And that's something even more than just learning about what my dad did day to day was just that openness around, you know, what does becoming financial independence mean? What's the difference between wants and needs? I just, I grew up around that. And just on a more fundamental level, my dad was always my hero, my role model. So just even if maybe at the time I didn't know exactly what he did, I wanted to be like him. And as I got closer and closer to making my own decisions about what I wanted to do, the idea that he became successful by having a business of taking care of family and friends, growing with them over time, was just something that I always thought, what an incredible thing to do, way to live. And I really never contemplated doing anything else. There is a financial independence movement, and many people think it was spawned out of the economic upheaval of the 2008 recession. But clearly, it sounds like your family has been talking about financial independence for a long time. Yeah, and I would say it all started with my grandpa, who started our team back in 1959. He grew up, his dad passed away when he was early. He became the man of the house at a very young age. And you know, he didn't have the childhood that, I, you know, that I'm fortunate enough to have that my dad did. Every, you know, every guiding decision of his life and then when he met my grandma of their lives was around becoming financially independent, you know, not having to worry about when the next paycheck is coming in and being able to live the life they imagined. And every decision he made along the way growing up was they could have lived in a bigger house or drove nicer cars or just made decisions day in and day out and spent a little bit more. But he had this vision that he wouldn't veer from of becoming financially independent later in life because it was an experience he just didn't have growing up. And I think he really set the foundation for everything that my dad preached to his clients and lived himself. And now that my sister and I are both trying to do in our own lives. I would also mention that Vicky Robin and Joe Dominguez were early speakers of financial independence in the 80s and 90s too, but it never really caught hold the way it has as of more recent. We are going to jump into your financial advising, but before we do one last question about your days as a soldier, I think for sure our life experiences affect the way we think about money. What did you learn being a soldier that has changed the way you manage money for yourself and your clients now? Yeah, great question. And, and sometimes every first call, you know, they say, oh my God, he's a soldier. Like, what does that mean for what we're doing moving forward? I think more than anything is just having that perspective. You know, there were weeks in the field where you think you're never going to get out of the field. You're just, you're training, you're tired, you're hungry. And you really have to have that foresight of, hey, we're going to, you know, Training is going to end. I'm going to get through this. And having that big picture and that sense of purpose and optimism, you're really not able to finish your training if you don't have that. And I think that relates especially well to being an advisor when you're literally you're helping your clients achieve financial independence. They're relying on you and they're trusting you to have that sense of the big picture, to not freak out or panic in the moment, and to be able to see through whatever the crisis of the moment may be. Obviously, now is an incredibly important time to be talking about that. But I think just having that calm, that resolve, that optimism we're going to get through this and we're going to come out stronger is just something I try to preach every day when I'm speaking with my clients. In your book, you tell a story about moving to a new guard duty in the pitch dark of night and how that taught you to deal with your emotions. Talk to us about that story a little bit. I found it really interesting. 
Thank you. And the fact that I didn't bring that up as the first story of like what it was like being scared in the army should just tell you how absolutely petrified of heights I really was, that that was my first thought. But yeah, midway through my service, we were stationed on the border of Lebanon. We were replacing another unit that was there in the middle of the night. And obviously we didn't have time to say, all right, we'll we'll just leave it empty for the night and we'll come attack this in the morning. We had to make that change in the middle of the night. So we're learning, we had looking out onto the Vista, what we were checking out, what security measures we had to put in place. I got stuck at the guard post from two in the morning until six in the morning. Maybe they figured put the American that doesn't really speak Hebrew that well out there. That's a great idea, right? (laughs) And um, so I get there and again, pitch dark. We hadn't been there in the light of day yet. So I have no idea what's really in front of me, how far out a potential enemy might be. And I I keep hearing these noises and I'm getting more and more animated. My heart's bursting out of my chest. And I run up, talk to my friend on the walkie talkie who was somewhere different. I said, did you hear that? He's like, no, I'm all good over here. No, no weird noises over here. So that's just freaking me out more. And the whole night I'm just, you know, I'm a little on edge. I'm trying to do security checks, but I can't really see anything. And I come out the next morning, the entire unit doing an actual security check, learning where everything is because of the light of day. And I realized that the nearest village, you know, what we were scouting out wasn't for a mile down the road, meaning there was nothing I was hearing in the middle of the night other than goats, sheep, maybe a few wild cats, but uh, nothing that I should have been worried about. And it's just one of those stories that if I had known what I was looking at, if I had, if I was better prepared, if I could see ahead of me, there was nothing to be concerned or scared about. And I just always connect that back to our financial lives that if most people had more of a plan. If they knew what they were doing, if they knew what their goals were projecting out, there'd be a lot less uncertainty. And I think that uncertainty more than anything scares us off. And that was certainly the case for that crazy night in the border of Lebanon. It sounds like the fear of the unknown was enough to scare you quite a bit. And that definitely sounds a lot like many of our financial situations. Let's talk about the Henry syndrome a little bit. What is the Henry syndrome and when did you first come across this phenomenon? So a Henry is a high earner that's not rich yet. And the reason that we actually trademarked the idea of Henry syndrome is because it's a fine place to be, but if you're not doing anything to change your behavior, to really get started in terms of doing more to achieve your goals, and we'll talk about what that actually means, you're going to stay in that same situation. That's why I really think it's a syndrome that if you're not doing the proactive things you need to, you're not moving forward. But Where I really heard it for the first time was actually not even from high earners, not rich yet, not from young people themselves, but I started my career listening in on all of my dad's meetings. I would say in my first six months in the business, I listened in on a hundred new meetings that my dad had. He had me like sit in the corner. I wasn't really, I wasn't there for my wit and wisdom. I wasn't giving any advice. I was really just taking notes and listening. But every new client that my dad met with at the end of the meeting, you know, most of them would say some variation of, wow, if I had met you 30 years ago, 20 years ago, if I had started worrying about my saving, my investment habits, my protection planning, all these things that we talk about, I couldn't even imagine where I would be right now. And because most of my dad's clients are 55, 60 plus, so they were, you know, we were really reaching them at the end of, of their planning process. I just kept hearing the same thing over and over again. If I had met you then, if I had started being proactive then, And hearing that enough made me realize, well, why aren't we reaching people at the beginning of their financial journey when they have so much time to make the right decisions and set themselves up? So that's when I decided to launch the Wealth Builder Division at our firm and really focus on young people that are making good money, that have financial opportunity, but maybe feel that they're not maximizing it. They don't know where to start. They don't know really what that looks like. Or more than anything, really, is they don't have the time, the energy. A lot of my clients are young families. They're working two jobs. They may have three little kids running at home. Financial planning is a full-time 
it's a full-time job. There are a lot of different areas and a lot of them just saying, hey, I don't even know where to start. So that's really when I started focusing on, hey, if we can reach people earlier in their lives, what an incredible difference it can make by the time they do reach retirement age, feeling a little bit better about where they are. Now, young people tend not to have the highest of net worth. Therefore, financial planners sometimes avoid them. It's not an easy way to make a living, per se. Right. And I think you know, that's why we really we put Henry syndrome and the idea of a Henry on everything that we do. Because yes, my fundamental goal, most of the Henrys I'm, walk, I'm meeting with, they don't have $2 million and they're saying, hey, let's invest in this. What are we doing right now? But it's they're high earners. They're making money, which means that there are planning opportunities in a lot of different areas to start that relationship now and start getting on the right path. I feel very fortunate that I am part of a successful third generation wealth management firm that I'm really not concerned about the next month, the next year. I'm just, and again, no testament to myself, it's because of what my grandpa and my dad started, that I can focus on people and say, hey, what's it going to look like five years from now in our relationship, 10 years from now? Some of my dad's best clients that I now work with their kids and their grandkids, which is a pretty cool thing, but they started when they were younger than me, when they were in their 20s. So I, I kind of have, I'm able to have that perspective of seeing 10, 20, 30 years out that it's not about what they have to invest this second. It's about what we can start doing this second. So 10, 20 years, we're all sitting in a better spot together. But you're absolutely right that that's not something that I think most people don't even know financial advisors want to work with them because that money isn't there that second. And that reminds me, you guys use the term client-centric approach. That gives you a little bit of freedom to really focus on what the client needs because you're part of a well-established firm and how much you're making on that one client that day may not be as important. Absolutely. And really, every single client that we work with starts with the same written plan that comes before any investments, any protection, any individual vehicle. So we very much start as a client-centric approach in that they know exactly what starting the relationship looks like. They know what it's going to look like over time. And I think it just affords us a rare opportunity to meet people when they're young and kind of hold their hand at their beginning of the journey, not just well, when they've reached their high point. Your book starts one of its chapters by asking, what's the only number that matters when it comes to your financial future? And of course, the first thing that popped into my head was net worth. But that was not your answer. What is that most important question? It's how much you're able to save. I talk about all the time comparing your income to your how much you're able to save. The income is almost immaterial if we're not actually putting some of that money in our pocket. And the very first client that made me realize this was actually one of my oldest friends. And I talked about it in the book, but he was obsessed. He was making great money, very successful and had been for a number of years. But by the time he reached out and said, hey, I need some help. I think I have some assets. I think I need help planning. We realized that the amount he had actually saved over the preceding five years, you know, it was fine. This isn't a judgment thing, but it's just relative to how much he had made. He was shocked that he hadn't actually saved more over time. And the reality was, it was because he just wasn't focused on that. He was loving his income. And I actually wrote out on my whiteboard each year how much he had earned and each year how much he had saved. And over five years, he had made a little over a million dollars and how much he had to show for it, meaning how much was actually in his retirement accounts, in his savings accounts. I think he was thinking back to all those late nights working and just being on the grind. And that just kind of reinforced how important it is when we're young to focus on the amount we're saving and not just the amount that we're earning. On that point, I have to admit, I've read enough personal finance books that I rarely come across something that I think is new or different, but you had a way of reframing what your savings rate should be. You asked kind of an important question, 
you tend to ask your clients, well, what if your rent went up $500? And I thought that was a great technique. Yeah, I, I, again, everything, my dad's, you know, I, every idea that I wrote in the book, I've been hearing from my dad, from my grandpa's passed down. So as much as I like to claim credit for any of this, I definitely heard him say that on one of my first meetings. But the idea, and I heard him say this, one of my first meetings that, that I sat in on, a lot of times we're sitting down with a client and they may say, I'm saving 1000 2000 5000 and that's it. There's no other money in my budget, right? Like that's how much I have to save to accomplish all these things I want to do down the road. And we asked, all right, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come to your apartment every month, the first of the month, and I'm going to come and collect $500. And you have to pay me or else I'm kicking you out of your apartment. What would you do? Would you be able to come up with the money or would we be moving you out on the 15th? And most clients that we pose that sort of question to, they say, ah, I love my apartment. Moving is the worst. I'm not dealing with any of that. I'd figure it out. I'd find ways of coming up with that money. And the number is almost immaterial. Sometimes it's a lot more. Sometimes it's less. But it's this idea that if we prioritize saving money in the way that we prioritize some of our more short-term financial needs, we would be able to do it and we'd be excited to do it. Not only would it be a chore. So kind of what we're trying to get our clients to think about is not just, well, however much is left over at the end of the month, that's how much I'm going to save. No, this is a priority. You're going to be able to achieve your goals based on how much you're saving. So flipping it a little bit, it just makes you think about it in a different way. And that's gotten a lot of people motivated to actually start saving a little bit more than they thought they were capable of. Now, many people we would classify in this Henry category are millennials. And I could see millennials coming back to us and saying, man, you know what? We've just had it hard. We had the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. Now we have this COVID craziness, this pandemic, and probably another global recession. Have the millennials had it harder than other generations? Yeah, I don't know if I could. I mean, I'm a millennial, first of all. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, yes, we, yes, we have, absolutely. <laughs> but I think every, every generation has their, you know, has their struggles, their issues. Even if you're talking just from a market perspective, you know, of how often over time the market has gone down because of different wars or different recessions. I think every, my short answer is I think every generation has their share, their problems. And it's just how do we come out stronger on the other side? And I think we have our work cut out for us. But I know, you know, I think this whole idea, like all the articles that come out about millennials aren't achieving their financial goals because they're spending an extra $2 on coffee or because they're buying avocado toast. I think that's just a little, a little overdone. And the goal is not to get our younger clients to not spend money. Any advisor that's just coming out and saying, no, we need to cut your spending by, by half and you shouldn't be doing anything. Well, that's not a recipe for success. We need to come up with a solution that allows you to live your life, do the things you're passionate about that you, you prioritize, and also just make sure we're saving a little bit more for the future. And I think that's how we strike the divide. As we talk about millennials, I think back to your story about that guard duty and the fear you had do you think right now the Henry syndrome getting away from that way of life is more about learning the factual knowledge or is it a mindset change? Yeah, I think everything in finance is mindset driven is, you know, I think so much more of it is about our emotions and our behavior and even the way we grow up with money as opposed to just knowing factually what the markets do over time or what my retirement account is going to look like 20 years out. I think a lot of it is emotional driven and I think that's what a big part of my job is to serve as my client's financial coach, advocate, and fight against some of those impulses that we all have when it comes to our money. So I think if we can start from that background floor emotionally, one of my first clients, they came to me before he was actually even out of law school. 
and said, I appreciate you reaching out, but like, you know, you're still in school. How much, you know, how much income are we really making? How much are we planning? And his whole mindset was driven by the choices that his family had made. They lived life luxuriously. They basically did what they want. And as my friend got older, he realized that his family was going to have to work a lot later than they ever intended because of decisions they had made along the way. And my friend was just so motivated to end up on the other side of that, to be financially independent, to not have to work until he's 80 to afford the lifestyle. And I think getting at that root of everybody has their own money story, as we put it, how they relate to money, how they grow up. A lot of my clients are families and partners, spouses. How do they relate to money separately together? And I think starting that conversation is way more important than anything fact-driven that might come later. We talk about mindset a lot. And I know in the personal finance community, there are a large number of people who say, well, I don't really need a financial advisor to do all this, right? They say, I can figure it out my own. I can read up on it. How necessary is a financial advisor? And I like the fact that you use this term financial coach, because it speaks to this idea that there's a lot more than just telling you where to put your investment specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first off, you know, I should say, some people don't need an advisor. You know, my dad always says, if you have the time, the energy, the inclination to handle your own planning, obviously some people do. And they're fine with it. You know, they do fine with it. What I always come back to, when I look at the most successful people in my life out there, the people that have obtained great wealth or are an expert in what they do, they're not doing everything themselves, right? They, they know what they're really good at and they stick in their lane and they hire really smart people that they trust and that, know, that they know have their best interests at heart to take care of what they're not focused on. And I think financial planning is exactly like that. There's so much more that goes into it than just managing the actual assets. In fact, we won't work with a client unless we walk through an entire written financial life plan in which the investments don't even come up until the 99-yard line. So much more of the tax planning of how much we're saving, the goal-based planning, are we on the right track to achieve our goals? I just think there's a lot more that goes into it than just managing the assets. And again, most of the people that I'm working with, they're young families. They have enough going on without worrying about, did I maximize my tax bill this year? Did I save enough into my different retirement accounts? They're, ha they're happy to say, hey, I know you're taking care of this. It's one less thing I have to worry about. To know that to pay that 1% or whatever an advisor's fee, fee is, to make sure the other 99% is protected, most people say, hey, you know, that's something I want to sign up for. And, um, and again, not everybody, and I'm not trying to say every single person needs one, but I think you know, you know if you can have professional help, why that might make sense. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Listen, if you're like me, you thought at one point in your life that having enough money would solve all of your problems, and guess what? It didn't for me, and it probably isn't for you. But you know what helps quite a bit? Therapy. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It definitely did for me, and when I used BetterHelp, I found that I was learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowered me to be the best version of myself, and it's not for just those people who've experienced major trauma. You might be like me. Maybe you got to the point where financially you were successful, and yet you still found that life's problems hadn't been all solved. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash E-A-R-N. What you say really about experts reminds me of Stanley and Danko in The Millionaire Next Door. They talk in that book quite a bit about this idea of having your accountant and having your lawyer and having your group of professionals helping you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have an accountant that I that I love and I think he does a great job. And I know enough that I could use another a software. I could, you know, but I love the idea that this guy that knows exactly what he's doing, he's making sure I'm taking advantage of every situation that I'm I know things are getting done and I'm more than happy to pay to make sure that you know my situation is maximizing. And I feel comfortable, you know, and it lets me sleep at night. So I want to get into some more granular financial Mm -hmm. concepts with you. But before I do, let's talk about what's happening in the world today. So as of today, we are April 20th, 2020. Currently, most people in most states are shelter in place. The stock market is going up and down, and certainly there's fears of a global recession. How much is the current environment changing the financial advice that you are giving to your clients? So it's funny. I actually did a webinar last week talking about exactly that, basically what's going on right now and how is that, how is that affecting the way we should be thinking about our financial futures. And I think for a lot of my young professional clients and most of the people I work with, now is actually an Provided that you know your income hasn't changed, that you're you know in a financially viable situation, that now is actually a huge opportunity time to make sure that you have that plan in place to come out of this stronger on the other side. And I think there are just a lot of areas for young professionals making money that have disposable money to save and plan with to make sure that they're taking advantage of those of what's going on right now. And what do you say to the client who comes to you and says, "I want all my money out of the market. It's clearly on the way down." Yeah, we just. <laughs> We try to, I just hang up right away, actually. I, I, don't, even, I don't even deal with it. We're, we're close today. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're close. I'm sorry. No, we, you know, we say we've been here before. And a lot of my clients, they, may not, they might not have been here before. This might be the first time where they have enough money in the market or they're saving enough that it feels like the first time. 2008, maybe they just, they didn't have enough that it felt like it was really hitting them in the gut. And we just say every decade or so, there's a recession, there's a market correction, and this happens frequently. Market volatility is the norm. And as long as we know we don't need the money in the next six months, the next year, that we're growing this out for the next 10, 20 years, we're really not affected by these short-term swings. And in fact, every single one of my clients has their own bucket plan that we allocate their money according to our three buckets, now, soon, and later. So that when we're working with a client, our clients know exactly 
what their money is geared to do and when they're actually planning on spending it down. So that when a market correction like this happens or when the market goes down 20-30%, they know that their money in their now bucket, which is just sitting in checking accounts, saving is liquid, is not affected. They, they need that money for a rainy day, it's there. And the money in the soon bucket and the later bucket can be invested a little bit more aggressively. And I think them knowing that, hey, I have these, these three separate pots of money and only that last one is really geared towards long-term growth. Only that last one is really hit by what's going on right now. Let, lets them sleep at night and I should, not more importantly, but as importantly, make sure that they're not, they're not taking the money out. They're not making behavioral decisions that are going to mess up what everything we've done to this point and they can let it sit and come back for the future. And I think buying that time horizon by having a bucketing approach just really quells a lot of that emotional freakout risk, as we call it. And a lot of people, it sounds to me, mistake the now bucket for an emergency fund, but they're not exactly the same thing, right? Right. They're at, yeah, absolutely. They're not. You know, I like to say an emergency bucket is a part of the now bucket, but it doesn't make up the entire thing. An emergency bucket, you know, emergency bucket is your next six months of living expenses. That if you lost your job, if your income went down, if a pipe burst in your house, you have that money for the next few months to get you through without any more income. But then we want one to two years of big living expenses. So a client I met with last week, they're looking to buy a home the next year. So they also need money, not just for their emergency cushion, that if something happens to their income in the short term, but they also need that future down payment in their, in their cash cushion in their first bucket. So I think it's a combination of the two that, and especially at times like right now, having that cash cushion and maybe having a little bit more than you think is not a bad thing because it allows you to sleep at night and it allows you to be appropriately aggressive for your more long-term driven assets. So while reading your book, I probably would say that I agreed with 90% of the content. There were two issues that I thought certainly the personal finance and definitely the financial independence community would push you on. One is rent versus own when it comes to a house. There are many people who do not look at their house as an investment, but more as a cost center. That doesn't necessarily go with your philosophy, does it? Actually, I, I, I think it does. You know, I rent in New York City right now. I'm not thrilled about it. I think, you know, every dollar that I spend on rent, I'm not building up something, something of my own. So I think, I also think it's an, emotion, it's an emotional thing. I just, you know, the idea of rent drives me crazy emotionally just as much as the financial numbers. What, what I would say is I actually agreed with what you said before is that I don't look at my future home as an investment in that I'm taking money from it, in that it's going to allow me to retire or anything like that. So I 100% agree with you know, what you're saying, what the financial independence, the way they look at it as a, as a cost as opposed to an investment. But I just think you know, all else being equal, if I'm paying the same amount, and again, that's a big if, I would rather know that I own an asset as opposed to, to rent my asset. So like, for example, I'm not, I'm not interested in buying rental property. That's not something that I'm wired for. I would rather my money be in my investments and grow over time. So I'm not looking at that as an investment source or anything I'm looking at. But I think building up equity in your own home is just a powerful thing, is a powerful thing for the future. So I, I think it's de de dependent on every person and what their financial situation is. Another one of those issues I came across is life insurance, especially in the community I'm in. There is a lot of support for term life insurance. However, anything other than term life insurance is definitely is looked down upon. Tell yeah. me about your beliefs about non-term things like whole life insurance. Yeah. So 
So first off, I think term insurance, you know, if you, if you only need the most amount of death benefit for the, for the lowest price and you're renting, you're renting the insurance. So term insurance fundamentally is for if you die, not when you die. And I absolutely think there's a time and a place. When we talk about permanent insurance, which is more like owning, owning your home, again, it goes a lot, a lot more details go into it, but that you're actually building up a secondary asset. It's just another asset that you can one day take money from as income. So it's not for everybody, first of all. But I think if you're a high earner and you're saving money to a lot of different, you're able to save money in a lot of different vehicles, using a whole life insurance policy to be able to save money for the future, it's tax efficient. And is it going to be the greatest growing vehicle that you own? Absolutely not. And you know, nobody should mistake it for putting money in your 401k, but it serves as a non-correlated asset, meaning when the market goes down, like where we're living right now, and you're 50, 55, 60 years old, and you have your 401k, your Roth IRA, all of these investments, and you see it down 20, 30%, then is not the time to take money from those vehicles. And that's when cash value life insurance serves a role, and that you can take money from that sort of asset, let your investments rebound until the market does rebound, as we know it does, before you go in. So it protects against something we call sequence of return risk. But again, I think it's a small, it's, I own a whole life insurance policy, I'm putting money in each month, but I think you have to have the ability to save money and save a decent amount of money for it to make sense as part of your plan. So it's in some ways a diversification play and certainly some asset protection. And later in life, it also becomes part of your now bucket. Because once you've put money in and you have this cash value that's sitting there, that's not affected by what's going on in the stock market. We have, you know, we have clients in their 50s, 60s, 70s that they know they have 100000 sitting in the cash value of their life insurance policy. It's there if they need it. And I think that helps let them sleep at night. And again, just as importantly, lets their 401k keep doing exactly what it should be, which is growing for 10, 20 years down the road. Yeah. So that can be a really nice emergency fund. Yeah. So another controversial issue with financial advisors and financial coaches is how they choose to charge their clients. What type of model do you use in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. That's an important question. So every single client, I think I mentioned this earlier, goes through what we call our financial life planning process. We actually call it FLIP, and we recently trademarked it because it really, you know, we've kind of built this out over the decades. So every client that we start with goes through this financial planning process before we're talking about any individual investment vehicles, protection vehicles, and it's basically a checkup of your financial life. What have you done to this point, and are you on the right track to achieve your financial goals based on what you've done right now? I always compare it, our process of, you go to a doctor's office, and you say your stomach hurts, right? A good doctor is not just going to immediately prescribe medicine and say, hey, take this, you know, let me know if you feel better in a week. They're going to say, hey, how have you been sleeping, eating, are you working out, are you stressed at work? Do you have any of these dietary issues? They're going to go through a checklist of questions and they might say, hey, we need to run these five, six tests. And when you come back, we're going to go through all of your options and walk through what dietary changes you need to make, what lifestyle changes, so on and so forth before coming up with a plan. That's what our financial life plan process is before we actually recommend any sort of investment strategy. We charge a flat fee to do that written plan. And we keep that one-time planning fee separate from any of the investment allocation or investment decisions that the client can make on the back end. Because it's really important for us that, just like the doctor, that our, our advice is objective. Meaning when they get their plan at the end of the process, and they know exactly how much they should be saving, investing, what type of insurance, how much, if they need it at all, all these different areas of their life, they can then take our plan and walk to 
their cousin Joe, who handles investments, their sister Sally does insurance, and they're free to do that. For the, you know, most of the time, they end up wanting to work with us because we've walked them through that path. But it keeps that it allows them to make that decision on the back end. So long-winded answer, but our fee structure is pretty simple once we do that plan. We charge a flat fee to do that plan, depending on who we're talking to and how much goes into it. It typically ranges from three to $5,000 for the plan. And then if they choose to hire us to manage the assets on the back end, we charge a flat 1% of the money that we're personally managing on their, or on their behalf. So it's a typical asset under management fee. After and if we both agree to work together after the plan. There are some clients, again, it doesn't happen too often, but some clients you know, are managing their own assets. They're happy doing so. And they say, hey, I just want to, I want a second opinion. I want to check up. I want to make sure that everything I've been doing the past 15 years, I'm not missing everything. I'm taking a look at the full picture. I did one a few months ago and they were in great shape. I made a few suggestions on the margins, but be it by and all, they were doing everything they needed to. They said, great, I'm glad we're on the right track. I'm going to keep handling my own investments. And so again, that's, it can go one of two ways. And I think some people just like the idea of a second opinion and knowing that you know, they're not missing anything. So the name of the book is How to Avoid Henry Syndrome, Financial Strategies to Own Your Future. Gideon, why did you write this book? You could have just kept on in your personal finance coaching practice, giving your knowledge there to those who agreed to pay for it and wanted to become your clients. Why put this out there? So I I do a lot of public speaking in New York City at a lot of different companies. And just the more I'm meeting so many young people and so many young families, there's not that much personal financial information out there. And I think the entire idea can be intimidating or overwhelming, right? Like most people in America, we don't grow up with this intuitive understanding of personal finance and what saving money looks like or what investing is. So the first time that we come in contact with some of these ideas, we're working, we have a family, it's a lot all at once. And I I wrote the book just as kind of a way to get more people talking about personal finance of getting comfortable with the idea of, hey, what is the different types of investing? What does that mean? Owning versus renting? just having conversations and being more open about their money. And I think the more people that are more open, then they're going to want to seek our advice on a more one-on-one level, or they're going to just take action steps. So I really didn't view the book as, the book's not supposed to tell you everything you need to know, because I don't think any book can tell any, any one family how to do that. But if it can start a conversation, if it can just help a lot more young people to start talking about their financial planning and being proactive, I, I thought that was a win. I like writing and I enjoy it. I liked writing before I wrote the book, after having written the book. I like having written a book. I don't like writing the book. I realized very soon into the process. But it was just, it was a very cool thing for me. And I think I just, again, grew up in a fortunate position, being the third generation and having a lot of these ideas from a young age, that it, mo- it makes it easier to write about it, to talk about it so openly. You make a great point as you're talking about the book that no book can teach you everything. It might be one of the best arguments why doing it yourself is difficult and having a financial coach is a good idea is that we love to say personal finance is personal and sometimes it takes an individualized approach. It's hard to get that from reading any one book or another. That, and I think it's also, you know, it's motivation too. And my sister's a personal trainer and she's doing a workout in the living room as we're chatting right now, such as quarantine life. But when she's working with her, with one of her clients, one of her students, and she asks them, hey, how many pushups can you do? They might say 50. She's like, cool, that's great. But if she were standing next to them, leading them through a workout at one of their sessions and said, hey, I need you to bang out 100 pushups right now. They may not do 100 pushups, but they're definitely going to do more than 50. 
they're definitely going to do more than what they thought they were capable of before. And I think that's one of the biggest roles that we can serve for our clients is getting them to save more, getting them to be more proactive in their tax planning or take care of those insurance plans that nobody really wants to talk about because it's upsetting to even think about. So getting them to take the steps they know they need to, but left to our own devices, we can be our own worst enemies, all of us. And I think that's one of the greatest roles that we serve on an ongoing annual basis is just making sure that they're pushing themselves a little bit closer to doing the things they need to. And going back to the book, did I see that you're donating the profits? Yeah, so we're donating 100% of the proceeds to the book to an incredible organization called Folds of Honor. They send the children and family members of fallen and disabled American servicemen and women to college to get their education. And we've, we've supported a lot of different veteran groups over the years. And I just, I love this idea. I think education is empowerment. And what a way to change some of these people's lives that have made the ultimate sacrifice and not just their lives, but their future generations, because I think that's what education has the power to do. So it's something that was just kind of near and dear to our heart. And that's why 100% of the proceeds are going to Folds of Honor for as long as as people want to buy the book. And so you are now the director of the Wealth Builder Division. You just wrote the book and you're also putting out a, a series of seminars. Is that correct? Right. So I was doing a lot of speaking at different companies while I was in the office at all. Obviously not so much these days, but we, you know, we try to do a lot of webinars. My dad and I are doing joining podcasts together. Um, we just, we try to get as much information out to our clients as possible, especially in today's age where we don't know what's happening day to day. The more that we can just give real information on about investments, about planning, about things to be thinking about, I think kind of like my army story, that fear of the unknown we can't take away the unknown on a large scale, what's going on in the world, the virus, all of that. We're not the experts. We don't know. But in that one sliver of what we do know in personal financial planning, the more information we put out there, I think, you know, the more people are comforted in knowing that, hey, we're on top of it and and we're looking at the whole picture. Yeah. It's nice to know you have someone on your side. Gideon, tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? Yeah. So you can go DWM Gideon's Corner on Instagram. Drucker Wealth is on Facebook, and we share a lot of videos, email blasts. Some of our videos are more financial in nature. Some of them I'm just recommending my favorite Netflix shows and what I've been watching lately. My dad goes on a lot of rants. We have two uh, rescue dogs, and he runs every day with my two dogs and then does a video afterwards. And I, don't, I think most people don't really care what he has to say in the videos. They're just watching my two dogs the entire time, waiting for them to do something funny. So if that floats your boat, what's next is just... We want to take, make this an opportunity time for all the young people, all the young professionals, young families, newlyweds, to have them come out stronger on the other side. I would really say my goal with our clients, with the people we're reaching, really hasn't changed now from three, six months ago. How do we set up more young people to be empowered, to take you know, financial ownership of their lives? And that's really my focus right now. In the short term, it's living at my, I came back to Jersey, my sister and her brother and my brother-in-law did as well. So we have a full house here at my parents' place. So that's keeping us all entertained. We've all like staked out our one room in the house that we're working out of. But hopefully all of this ends sooner rather than later. And we, you know, we all come out stronger on the other side. The quarantine life. It's a sign of the times. Yeah, absolutely. And also just, just to say thank you to all the healthcare professionals, nurses, doctors, everybody that's out there on the front lines. You know, what we're doing doesn't even compare to what they're doing on a daily on a day-to-day life to just keep everybody healthy and up and running. And so just want to say thank you to everybody listening that's doing all of that every day. 
This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Gideon Drucker. The book is How to Avoid the Hendry Syndrome, Financial Strategies to Own Your Future. That's a wrap. I've been thinking a lot about the financial independence retire early movement lately. One of the reasons is Christine Benz from Morningstar, who I had the privilege of interviewing on the Restacking Benjamins program a few weeks ago, put out a article for Morningstar called Confessions of a Former Fire Skeptic. And here she talks about the financial independence retire early community and mentions that she was skeptical at first, but has come to have a grudging respect. And I think this is really funny because I think a lot about financial independence retire early and it's really entered our communal consciousness after the 2008 recession with early retirement extreme and Mr. Money Mustache. And we can even trace the history a little farther back to Vicki Robin and Your Money, Your Life to possibly the 1980s or before. But this is not a new concept. In fact, if you just listen to my interview with Gideon Drucker on this episode, he mentioned that his grandfather and father were interested in this idea of financial independence. They're, in fact, two well-known bloggers and writers in this space who have been having a contest to see who could find the earliest literary reference to financial independence and have found books back to the early 1900s, which talk about this theme. In my own life, I found that to be true, too. My step-grandfather, that's my stepfather's father, actually is very similar to what we would call a modern-day fire practitioner. He was a dentist and lived in New Jersey and decided at some point that he was tired of practicing. So he saved up his money, and at the age of 49, he retired. And if that wasn't incredible enough, he lived well into his 90s. So we're talking about from 49 into his 90s and never worked a day again. And his wife was a stay-at-home mother, so she never worked even from the beginning. And he pretty much followed the playbook that we ascribe to financial independence retire early today. So what did he do? He invested in the stock market and let his money compound. He was an early geo-arbitrager. He lived in New Jersey, which was quite expensive at the time, and decided to move to Santa Fe, which was not very well developed, bought a really cheap house on a cheap plot of land, and he was frugal. This is a guy who would turn down the heat in the house. He, You'd have to take a cold shower in his house because they didn't want to turn the water heater on. And so he lived a very basic, simple life. I mentioned frugal, but I don't think my step-grandparents' life was lacking. In fact, you know, in their 50s and 60s and 70s and even into their 80s, they were really enjoying life. They were volunteering for the local hospital. They were traveling the world. They were taking classes They were being present for family and friends. They lived a very full life in those non-working years. Their kids had already grown up. They saw their grandchildren and became a part of their grandchildren's lives. So for me, in my history, this idea of financial independence is not something new. It's something that's been there 
for generations. And it makes me really question this idea of, have we really hit on something new when we talk about financial independence retire early? Or is this an age-old concept, especially as we become less and less enamored with this idea of retiring early? Most of us out there today who are interested in financial independence really don't feel the strong urge to retire. We felt the urge to leave jobs that didn't feel like they were fulfilling our purpose, our meaning, our identity. We didn't want to grind away our lives doing things that we didn't care about. But most of us who are part of this movement today leave these more restrictive jobs when we become financially independent and do other types of work. Some of that work is paid for. Some of it is not. But it's still work. It's still how we spend our time. We still create. We still add to the world. We still communicate with people. We still contribute to this world. So we're talking about financial independence retire early. We are now in the midst of a recession. We were back in 2008 too. This movement is growing, but it is not a new movement. It's an old movement. It's a movement about freedom. It's not about not working. It's about having control over your time, your life, and what you do with it. So maybe we have to stop calling this financial independence. In the end, what we're doing is what people should have been doing forever. It's what we will tell our children to do in the future. What we're really doing is just searching for plain, old, simple independence. Anything you feel like we didn't cover that you wanted to cover, I can splice things in. So if there's any specific points you're like, gosh, I really wish we hit that on that, I can always put it in. No, I, I thought that was great. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. If, if you are, if you want to ask me anything that you didn't cover, I'm happy to, but... Um, no, I thought I we think, covered a lot of different yeah, areas. Yeah, I think we, we covered a lot of areas. We talked about the Henry Syndrome. We talked about your personal story. We talked about what you do at your firm. That was kind of my plan was to weave it all into a coherent story. And I think it did. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I thought that was great. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.